Welcome, listeners. Today takes... Ah, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, listeners, to my humble abode. Let me set the scene for you. We got Cam Vidal sitting here drinking a nice warm coffee. We got Emma Savoy sitting here drinking a nice cup of coffee. I'm here with a kombucha. We're sitting on my wonderfully carpeted floor. No overhead lighting, all ambiance, all vibes. We're here bringing to you one of the best novels to ever be written. And what, and what novel is that, Austin? And that novel is Anna Karenina. So let's get Woo. into it. Let's oh, you forgot John. Oh, and then we got John. John is joined by joined to us through the workings of our computer. The interwebs. He's he's living in cyberspace right now. John, where are you? He's in the void. I'm in the abyss. There he is. His voice comes at us like a ghost. All right. Well, let's get into part two. Um, what was everyone's general feelings about about part two? Okay, I'm just going to be honest. This is John speaking. I I've not finished part two, but maybe I can play the role of of being the guy who's like surprised about what's going to happen. And and my hope is that it'll it'll inform the rest of my reading. But uh, yeah, I got about two thirds of the way through. Dude, no worries. I mean, I didn't make it all the way to the end either. I got but the to the things that I. But what I did and, read, I liked. I liked it a lot. Sick. I think it's a good part for taking the, the characters that he's kind of introduced in the first part, and then just adding so much to the to their background. Like Levin's character and Vronsky's really get fleshed out, and then Anna goes from like this ideal to kind of the complete opposite. So he adds a lot in this part. Yeah, she goes from like people glorifying her to they want to sling mud. <laughs> yeah, stand out yeah. line right there, dude. Also, I feel like uh, you could say she goes from a place of total understanding of what's going on around her to mm-hmm. she really doesn't even know what's going on in her own husband's mind. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's a really good point. It's big changes happening in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first big changes that comes really in the first few pages is that Kitty is now distraught she's um had this heartbreak of vronsky leaving her and levin's left her and now she feels totally shamed and is in this state of sickness so they hire this uh this famous doctor that gets called in i think it's so funny just reading uh his description uh as he's introduced because it really shows how leo tolstoy feels about um, the state of, of medicine at the time and of all this like new science that was going on. So I'm just going to read, if you don't mind, uh, about this famous doctor. That, so the, he, the famous doctor's called in, blah, blah, blah. With particular pleasure, it seemed, he insisted that maiden modesty was merely a relic of barbarism and that nothing was more natural than for a not-yet-old man to palpate a naked young girl. And I'm just like, and that's your intro to medicine. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I mean, yeah, he comes in and he does an examination of the patient, a sounding as they call, which is, you know, when he's like palpating her back and, you know, he's like tapping her in medicine. Um, you know, there's, there's ways that you can determine like how dense something is by just tapping on it and listening to the sound. And I think that's what he's doing right here. Tapping on her lungs, seeing, is there a pneumonia? Is there a cavity? 
you know, um, if there was like a collapsed lung, all those things would give different sounds from, um, from tapping on the back and listening closely. And, um, so yeah, he just comes in and just shames Kitty. And it's funny listening to the prince's thoughts about the doctor. It says the prince stepped aside. This is Kitty's dad trying not to show how ridiculous this whole comedy was to him. So yeah, how do how do y'all feel about about this intro to to the medicine, to the medical world, and Kitty's situation? Yeah, I'll, I'll comment that first to any listener who doesn't know Austin. He's in his second year of med school, and so I enjoy listening to you your perspective on this, and because um, this is your profession potentially, if if you make it through. Um. But one of my thoughts, uh, a line that I highlighted in my book was Kitty's perspective of what was happening. Uh, she said that her, her treatment seemed to her as ridiculous as putting together pieces of a broken vase. Her heart was broken. And, and she, she was the one who was very clear that there's much more of like a depression going on here that spills into the rest of her like physical being. and. I mean, we, we know that anxiety and depression has like physical effects on your body. And, but, but she's aware of like what's actually happening. Like her heart's broken and it's, it, it would seem ridiculous to me too. If someone was like knocking on my back, like, hmm, what's wrong in here? <laughs> and, and man, that, oh, that, yeah. that image of a broken vase, it seems almost impossible to put together. Yeah, dude. That's so good. And I think it's also, it's funny too, to think about how ridiculous it is because, um, you know, what they come to a decision about is that nothing can be done because, <laughs> you know, the two doctors are just are going back and forth like, oh, is it a tubercular condition? What they're talking about is tuberculosis, which is incurable at the time. And like they had no antibiotics and there's no way they could diagnose it until it was well advanced and she was wasting away muscle and there was cavities in her lungs where this bacteria had eaten away at her lung tissue. And there's nothing that they could do for that or know about that. And so they say, "Mm, go abroad and rest. And, um, and so, yeah, I know that this time Kitty's feeling like this is ridiculous. Um, it is interesting how it's connected though, of how she's like, has this heartbreak and it's, it's almost like the psychological being connected to the physiological. Yeah. Um, I know just through reading like the man's search for meaning, like that theme pops up a lot where like people that ended up surviving those concentration camps, usually with the people that held on to something like some type of meaning, like most of the thing that Victor Frankl noted was their, was their wives. They'd always have the face of their wives. They would think about, um, but it affected their survival and the people that, I remember that one story real quick because I just think it's interesting of the, you know, this dude, he's like, if I just make it to March 31st, like I'm going to be set free. And he, and he, and he kept looking forward to March 31st and he kept believing that he was going to be set free. And then the closer they got to the date, he ended up losing hope. And I'm pretty sure he died like on that day. Wow. Um, but it just shows like how strong the psychological is, the physiological, but and yeah. it's shown right here. In Kitty, like, she's heartbroken and she's physically ill as well. I was trying to decide like reading this part, if she is aware if that that is the cause of how 
of her physical sickness, if her grief is, because when um, Dolly comes to talk to talks to her, she's she asks her not to commiserate with her, and she says, "I have no grief," and she says, "I there's no way for me to love a man who doesn't love me," and I'm wondering if Kitty is still in denial or if she's aware of what's going on. I don't know if you guys. I think she's aware. I think just like how the shame that she's feeling from this whole farce of the doctor coming in is like, you know, that, that there's the shame of being, you know, naked before someone and and being tapped on. But then there's also the shame of knowing that there's nothing that can be done because like what's really going on is something that she's, um, that's going on internally. And so the nakedness spirit. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I would add too that at the end of that section in chapter one, Kitty says, well, it, the narrator says, she often almost always had to pretend now. Like, it, she was aware that she's like pretending and like putting on a face um, because of all the ruckus that it's causing in the family and the doctors. And she just realized she has to pretend. And then it was in chapter three that um, that Dolly comes and tries to comfort her. And I think that scene of Dolly comforting Kitty is the most ironic scene because she, because Dolly, what she's telling Kitty has to be what she's been telling herself with the affair that's been going on with Stepan. Um, she's like, come on, Kitty. Can you really think I don't know? I know everything. And believe me, it's nothing. We've all got to go through it. And And she says like right later, whenever Kitty's like, is, I don't know if he's in love with me or like, I guess he left me. And this is, this is Dolly. I think projecting her feelings. Dolly says to Kitty, I'm sure he was in love with you and is still in love, but dot, dot, dot. Like trying to convince Kitty that, that Vronsky still loves her. That's and like trying and to what she's doing. I, I, yeah, I think she's really just this is the story she's been trying to tell herself about Stepan. Gosh. Yeah. John, what page is that on? Oh, it's in chapter three. Yeah. Whatever that is in, in your book. Yeah, yeah. Um Wow. Yeah, it's it's one twenty four in my in my book. And they're both just like um feeling guilty and ashamed in the sense that they didn't realize like both Dolly and Kitty, they didn't realize what was going on. So they're like, she's um, Kitty's ashamed that she was in love with Vronsky in the first place. If he wasn't as attached to her. And I think Dolly's wondering the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. And then Kitty comes back with the most biting words. Dude, yeah, she I does. Know. She's like, I would like- never do what you're doing. Go back with a man who's betrayed you, <laughs> who has fallen in love with another woman. I don't Dude, understand I- that. Yes. You make you can do that, but I can't. And then I was like, oh, Dolly just like went out on a limb trying to come yeah. for this girl. And then Kitty turned into a lion. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> but then Kitty comes back and apologizes because it's like. Well, they never really. She didn't say. I'm sorry. No, it's like she just breaks yeah. down. She breaks down in front of her. Yeah, I feel like this is like a, a classic scene of where like the character is thinking something and wants to connect and wants to say something, and then they say something completely different. Mm-hmm. But like that, there's still there's still some connection that's made on, a, on an unspoken level. But uh, 
but yeah, that's kind of like what's going on in the beginning of the book. Um, but I was wondering, yeah. like, what what someone else, you know, if anyone else had a, a favorite part after that. Yeah, I can I can roll. I, I've got I've got a part. Um, so fast forward just a little bit to chapter nine. There we we get an insight into an extremely important vignette into the inner chambers of Anna Karenina and her husband, Alexei. Um, just to set the context of this scene of one of my favorite scenes in this part. Um, just a little bit before Anna was with Vronsky at Princess Betsy's social gathering. And everyone at the gathering was, was kind of gossiping about the love triangle. And because Vronsky and Anna were talking at a table and then Alexi comes into the room. And they're still talking, Vronsky and Anna. And then Alexi kind of like moseys around, clumsily walks, as it's put in the book. And he goes up to Anna and says, can you go home? Or like, can you come home with me? But then Anna said, no, I'm going to stay for dinner, air quotes. But she's really staying to talk to Vronsky. Yeah. Anyways, it... So, so um, Alexi's in denial and he goes home and he's nervously awaiting this conversation that's about to happen because he's like yeah. summing up courage to talk to Anna mm-hmm. about what the whole community has been gossiping about. Anyways. Anyhow, so he's like literally going in circles. Mm-hmm. Yes. Don, and, can I read so, a little quote from this part to illustrate what you're talking about? Um, sure. Yeah. Because it's one of my favorite quotes is when uh when he's preparing to receive her when she, for her to come back he describes it as um he will convince himself again that something had happened after all his thoughts as well as his body went around in a full circle without encountering anything new which he noticed and I just I just love that illustration of overthinking something in your mind or a scene convincing yourself that there's an issue and then tr- he's trying to puzzle out um his wife's conscience the whole time, like where is she coming from and just going in circles in that process. So you can kind of see where he is building up to the scene you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Man. And this is just such a crucial moment where Alexi's to the point where he's being, he's about to be vulnerable and express some like uh, that he, he's nervous about what's going on. And then Anna has like an opportunity to confess what's happening. And so it's all summing up to this point where Anna walks through the door and and it begins by saying that she felt herself clothed in an impenetrable armor of lies. Mm. That, that image that she's aware of what's happening and she felt herself closed and it wasn't just her who felt it, but, but Alexi, he, he, he talks about like he whenever he goes to bed five minutes late, she always notices and she says something, but now she's not saying anything. And like it meant a lot that she didn't notice that he was like still standing up waiting for her. And then he, here's the line that stuck out. He saw that the depth of her soul, formerly always open to him, was now closed. Dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so now he's met with this this close but he like presses in. He had practiced this conversation in his head like what he's going to say to her. 
And he just like went like right before she walked in the door, he listed all the things he's going to talk about. And then he just like talks about them all like one after the next. Um, and, and a part that like I personally related with is he started off by saying, I look upon it, jealousy as something that's insulting and humiliating. And I would never allow myself to be guided by it. He like starts <laughs> with like that rationalization. Yeah. And I, I think if he would have led with like, Hey, I'm feeling jealous. I think there would have been a softening of heart, but he was trying yeah. to maintain his, I think she did his want order. Him to say that. Yeah. Cause she thinks of him as a machine. Like she says that later. And uh, yeah. I think mm-hmm. his admitting like he, his goal was to remove emotion from it. Um, he yeah. says, I'm going to approach this out of duty for our son, for our family, as the head of the household. But as a woman, she probably wanted him to say something along the lines of, I didn't, like, I was jealous of the way you were acting because that indicates some sort of care, even if it's it's not a healthy response. Like, I actually, mm-hmm. I kind of appreciate his perspective on jealousy. Like, it's degrading to our relationship because it assumes distrust. But maybe that's what she was looking for. Yeah. She, Anna shrugs her shoulders. He doesn't care, she thought, mm-hmm. but society noticed, and that troubles him. That's so interesting because I'm interested to see how his character, if he has any effect, because I know he has a lot of power in society, and I'm interested to see how Tolstoy views his character and him being very analytical, and if that's mm-hmm. a good or bad thing. Because my first impression is that it's going to be a bad thing for not only for the marriage, but also for society. Um, so that's just a thought. Yeah, that's interesting. That. I mm-hmm. feel like also though, like you see him like trying to be analytical in his mind, like planning out, like you're saying, John, all these arguments about like why he should be talking to her if at all. But then like what, you know, it's like he can't come out and just say from, from his heart, like I didn't like that. Because then he would be getting at emotion, which he's afraid of. Right. Mm-hmm. But yeah. you still pick that up in the way he talks. Like he kind of abandons his line of thinking, you know, and ends up saying yeah. something a little different instead that- of like, you know, I'm totally removed from this. Like I, he ends up com- kind of coming from a personal, personal place of, of, uh, that he didn't intend to at all at first. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's what I wanted to like continue on is is like he goes through every point yeah and then at at like the end of his like speech that he had prepared um this is whenever he's saying something apart from what he'd prepared he said it may well be i repeat that my words are unnecessary and inappropriate to you that they may be an an error on my part in that case i beg you to pardon me but if you do feel in yourself that there's even the slightest grounds I beg you to think, and if your heart speaks, to tell me. Alexei, noticing in, in, in himself, was saying something quite other than what he had prepared. And so he just like, he he's like, now he's begging. You know, he says, I beg of you to like, tell me if something's, if I have, if there's ground in what I'm saying. Yeah. And then she says, there's nothing for me to tell. And mm-hmm. dot, dot, dot. Uh, it's time for bed. And so pushes it off. Okay. And th- okay, this is this is the juicy part. They get into bed. You know, Alexi's kind of done with the conversation. He's quiet. 
And then Anna gets into her own bed and waited every minute for him to begin talking to her again. Mm. She feared that he would. And at the same time, she wanted it. Yeah. And so there's this moment, like he, he had opened up his heart. He leaned in, he'd been courageous in a way that he hadn't before. And she shut it off. And there's this like moment of vulnerability and probably a lot of tension, both of them laying next to each other. And he didn't say anything, but he was silent for a long time, waited motionless. And then she forgot about him. She was thinking about another man. She could see him and felt how this thought her heart. And at this thought, her heart filled with excitement and criminal joy. Dude. You know, like there's this moment of deep vulnerability where he's like, she's like, I don't want him to talk, but like I do to address yeah. this. And, and like, like the moment right now she's, passes. Leaning, you know, she's like deceiving, you know, I feel like from here on, like, she, like her character is just deceiving the whole rest of the part of the, the whole rest Gosh. of the book. Until and I'm, I'm, I'm known in like my personal experience, whenever I'm deceiving another, that feeling of like, oh man, just, I wish someone would catch me in this deception. Ooh, yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. s- someone just like, uh, like let's get this in the light, but like, I don't have the strength to get in the light, but just catch me, you know? And, and she, I, I, I kind of wanted to ask you all, like, what do you think? Do you think she would have, well, like, I wonder what would have happened, you know, if, if Alexi said something and then she confesses. You know, like, do you yeah. think that would have saved their marriage or that they it would have just been like an honest break? I don't know. My first, I feel like my first response is, I want to preface this with a quote. And it's a quote by Nietzsche that I've been thinking about. I love when you talk Nietzsche to me. Dude. It's, he says, that for which we find words is something already dead in our hearts. There's always a kind of contempt in the act of speaking. Ooh. And I think that's what's really going on underneath, at least what I think. It could be wrong, it could be right. It's just a thought of, because there was a part where Anna, I think we'll talk about it in a, in a couple of minutes, where Anna talks about on purpose finding the imprecise words for a feeling. It's like, as long as we can keep this in the, in the dark, it's almost, a, it's going to be alive. Yeah. It's going to be warm. But the minute we can put words around it, which like I look at Alexia's character is like kind of cold, very mm-hmm. analytical, cold. And yeah. if, if we, if he can find words to, cause I feel like they're opposite in that way. Yeah. And like he doesn't have to feel it fully. If yeah. he can just say, if he can describe it in some analytical term, you see that at the horse race too. And he's like, just speaking, speaking, speaking. And Anna's literally like, shut up. Like, <laughs> this is like, you're just spewing nothing. Right. But like, that's his way of like control is like, speak, speak, speak. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, and this like mystery or this conflict is almost like giving Anna life in a way. Yeah. There's probably a better word to describe it, but. Yeah. I think that word criminal joy criminal joy like I, I i was asking myself that question i was like what is criminal joy like is that possible yeah and, you know but well, that, that's i think it, that's the tension criminal. like a guilty pleasure it's like uh 
Alexi uses that word criminal too. It's almost like she's like using his word for what she's experiencing in her own mind of like, and that's making it sweeter mm. for her. I don't know. It's like forbidden. Well, this is making me think about what you said earlier, Austin, about how it's the flip of her character. Uh, she's blatantly not understanding things. Cause if you look at like um, the argument that John was talking about between Alexi and Anna, she repeatedly said her only response is like, gaiety and joy mm-hmm. and like blissful ignorance and she just keeps saying i don't understand i don't understand um yeah it's like she's blinding it, herself yeah uh cheerful cheerful perplexity i think is what they say so it's like she's finding this pleasure and not being the one who is aware of everything for the first time yeah choosing not to be yeah mm-hmm. i guess that's the the manifestation of her impenetrable armor of lies you know mm-hmm. it's, it's like nonchalance like kind of lightheartedness is yeah. is like how that manifests. Yeah. It's like the, the idea of the opposite of love being disengagement or disinterest and not like hatred. And there's that quote um, by Alexi that I just love where, or like describing his feelings where it says he has a feeling such as a man might have of returning home and finding his own house locked up um is how he feels trying to talk to Anna because they mm-hmm. used to be so vulnerable with each other and she's just a wall now and he still has the hope of finding the key but mm-hmm. she's finding too much pleasure and just shutting him down because she has this outlet outlet with Bronsky and then that the right what follows right after that it's it's interesting how you bring that because right after that it talks about how Alexia from that moment on was possessed by this by Anna's line and deceitment. Like he'd start to enter into it as well. And the word enchantment is used a lot. I'm starting to see, starting to notice. Mm-hmm. And Alexia is starting to be enchanted um, by Anna. And he's, I think he's getting to the point where he's not trying to open up, trying to find the key anymore. He's just going to mm-hmm. pretend that it's lost. Yeah. That there is no, no. key. Man. That there's no heartbreaking. Lock, yeah. you see see it like later too like he starts coming up with ways to defend even having to think about anna or having to think about his personal life because he it's like he there's this sore spot that he knows isn't right he just avoids and he's like oh it's easier to just avoid this than fight it Mm. it's easier to just put it under it's a it's like a short-term solution, but it's going to have long-term consequences. He's not really thinking about the long-term. He's thinking, oh, I'm going to just put this under the rug right now. Let's just think about how we look in society and move on from this. Um, and it's just yeah. it's just going to build up into this monster of a problem probably mm-hmm. later on. I don't know what it's going to be, but you're probably not going to work out. But <laughs> Yeah, and, and just Aaron, a, just a, the, oh, what was your favorite part Okay, yeah, good segue. So, chapter 11. (laughs) This was my favorite. Um, I'm just going to read a bunch of this. It's a a short chapter, but we go... Yeah, I'm just going to read this and then commentate on it. That which for almost a year had constituted the one exclusive desire of Vronsky's life, replacing all former desires, that which for Anna had been impossible, horrible but all more enchanting dream of happiness. The desire had been satisfied. Comment. I didn't know this at the time, but I did some research. That sentence pretty much meant that 
they hooked up. <laughs> you did some <laughs> research? Yeah, did some, some research, but because the desire had been satisfied. Yeah. The deed was done. I think he just didn't want to describe they had sex. Yeah, which I think okay. it just isn't what mattered to him. He just okay. wants to move on to, this to is the actually, consequences. This is actually important, though, because someone asked me this in a coffee shop earlier. They said, what is the difference in Anna Karenina as a, as a romance novel in comparison to other romance novels? I think Tolstoy is more concerned about the effects of, let's just say, infidelity mm-hmm. or love than the actual then the actions. Yeah. For example, this isn't like a lust tale. You know, he's not going to go into detail of them like hooking up because that's not yeah. what he's concerned about. He's concerned about the after effects. Yeah. Um, which or I think, like the it's yeah like what's going on internal person and like mm. how is that affecting your soul? Right. Because mm. he could have painted a whole like sex scene or something. But, yeah. Uh, I think he did it on purpose because he didn't want his readers to get distracted. Yeah. <laughs> from. From the real... Like all his characters are getting distracted. Dude, I love this description of Vronsky after like the deed is done. Dude, yeah. Pale, his lower jaw trembling, he stood over her and pleaded with her to be calm. Himself, not knowing why or how. I'm just like, mm, mm. that's it's just like this picture of like disaster almost. Yeah, and it, it's yeah. I'm gonna just keep reading this. Yeah, it's it's so good. I think this might have the potential to be the best passage in the novel. Watch, we're going to run out of time right now. Yeah, no. Uh, Anna, Anna, (laughs) he kept saying in a trembling voice, Anna, for God's sake. But the louder he spoke, the lower she bent her once proud, gay, but now shame-stricken head, and she became all limp, falling from the divan where she had been sitting to the floor to his feet. She would have fallen on the carpet if he had not held her. My God, forgive me, she said, sobbing, pressing his hands to her breast. She felt herself so criminal and guilty that the only thing left for her was to humble herself and beg for forgiveness. But as she had no one else in her life now except him, it was also to him that she addressed her plea for forgiveness. Look at him. She physically felt her humiliation could say nothing more. And he felt what a murderer must feel when he looks at the body he has deprived of life. This body deprived of life was their love the first period of their love gosh i've never heard like the shame explained in the sense of like a murder yeah it felt like Mm -hmm. a murder and i was thinking like they could have said like a killer yeah you know they but he tolstoy decided to use that word murderer which means it's like it was premeditated they knew exactly what they were doing Mm -hmm. um there was a moral component to it um and one other thought i want to add as well that i was thinking about is that in the moment they probably felt like oh like this is a pleasurable thing to do like we're in love and they just kind of acted in the moment but Mm -hmm. i think they're they're, i'm convicted there is truth to how you feel like this shame that they're feeling on their heart um for example yeah, it's like, oh, is this wrong or right? Yeah. It's like maybe the answer is on your heart. You know, yeah. like they, like Vronsky feels like a murderer. Mm-hmm. And that's a true feeling. And maybe that's a sign of like, maybe this isn't right. Yeah. <laughs> maybe well, like, and, and adultery. Dude, is, and like that's like the first sign. And I feel like later we can get to it. But like then there's the, the child, the innocent child. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's like another arrow pointing like this right. is the wrong direction you're going in. 
So it's okay. like a shame in theology is considered to be a boundary experience. Mm-hmm. So like the shame after the fall is meant to indicate something lost. Mm-hmm. And so that's like the whole concept of shame, like why we feel that way is an absence, something lost. So in this, it's just like the potential maybe to go back mm-hmm. was lost or to go back to the way their lives were. Um, and like later he talks about like, Anna, you're a truthful and honest woman. Like, why would you not want to reconcile all this? And she's conflicted. And I think it's because she realizes there's no real way for her to reconcile anything. Like any choice she goes, any path she goes at this point is going to be contradicting her character in some way. I love how you brought up um, shame in the Bible uh, because particularly what comes to mind is Genesis. Mm -hmm. Um, And even like the next line, it says here, there was something horrible and loathsome in his recollections of what had been paid for with this terrible price of shame. Mm-hmm. Shame at her spiritual nakedness weighed on her and communicated itself to him. Mm-hmm. That spiritual nakedness. Like instantly when I read that, I just thought of Adam and Eve and that whole story in Genesis mm-hmm. of like when they realized they were naked mm-hmm. um, physically, but also spiritually. Um, you know, and, yeah, and, and there's also for each other, yeah. Yeah. right? And that's the big thing too is that they paid the terrible price of shame. Um, and I think Anna realizes more than Vronsky the consequences of actions. Well, she has the con- she has the son already, right? Because she has everything. She to has lose. real consequences. Vronsky doesn't. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think you're totally right. Because Vronsky has nothing to lose, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Other than like the respect of his compatriots in the in the regiment but it doesn't seem to care that much yeah man and another cool idea from this is that anna gets everything she wants but then realizes like this is yeah i don't Mm -hmm. want any of this yeah once she gets it i think she could have realized but she was in denial well I I, i wouldn't say that she realizes she doesn't want it because she she still does like up to the last we see of her in part two, mm-hmm. she's still mm-hmm. you know it's like I'm trying to think of um it's like the thing it's like she's like holding on to this cup that is like so sweet to her but like it's poison and it's killing mm-hmm. her. and she's like fully aware of it and she's just thinking like I'm just gonna keep drinking because if I stop then I'm addressing mm-hmm. the fact that this is poisonous. And that's admitting to this terrible failure that's happened. I think you're right. Because, like, at the end of that scene between her and Vronsky, the end of the chapter is is him trying to talk to her about it. Because uh-huh. he can tell she's upset. And she just says, um, for God's sake, not a word, not a word more. Like, don't say anything. Yeah. And then it says she goes off on and she leaves. And she says, I can't think about it now. I'm going to think about it later when I'm more calm. And she keeps repeating that in her brain. Yeah. In her mind. So she's yeah. pushing it off and like just drowning in this cup. Yeah. Pull it, she's pulling a little Alexi, you know, throwing yeah, it under the road. It's beautiful uh, <laughs> yeah. sedation, really. Which is the opposite of her character in the last part. And there's that line that I brought up earlier. It's like she felt that at the moment she cannot put into words her feeling of shame, joy, and horror before this entry into a new life. And she did not want to speak of it to trivialize this feeling with imprecise words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like she didn't want to put in the words because the moment she does, it's dead. Yeah. And she has like she's experiencing some type of energy warmth, um, the life from yeah. this situation. But even if it's like mixed horrible. with yeah, even if it's like mixed with this kind of sickness 
it's it's a it's a thing that's like vibrant and it's like full of of emotion it's almost like i'd rather feel that than feel nothing at all which is yeah. what she was feeling mm-hmm. with cold marriage before mm-hmm. this. yeah that's a good and even go to a step further cameron it, right after that says she not only found no words in which she can express all the complexity of these feelings but what she could express all but was unable to even find the thoughts in which she could reflect with herself on all that was in her soul. There was yeah. something that's kind of ineffable. Un, there's not even a word to put on to this crazy complex mix of emotions happening. Mm-hmm. Like can't even think, doesn't even have the thought to formulate into a word. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, dude, for the sake of time, let's, let's keep moving through this part. Yeah, real quick, I just want to conclude one significant thing is that she does, it does end with her having a dream of both husbands yeah. by her side. They both are named Alexei, Alexei Vronsky, Alexei Krenna. Um, and I think the dream state, it's kind of like her showing that she wants, that's really what she would want in reality is to have both. But when she wakes up, she realizes that this is impossible and horror is the emotion that follows after that mm. but i think that gosh this is Cameron, that's a good that's a good note it's like mm. the that's the classic phrase she wants to have her cake and eat it too i was gonna yeah. say that yeah. like, oh, that sounds interesting but you can't do that <laughs> <laughs> no you can't oh, awesome emma oh yeah Spring. You want to talk about spring, right? Yeah. Did you want to spring, open that? Spring it on. Can, can, I, can I give you a layup? Yeah, spring it. I, I want to give you a little layup. Lay me up, uh, Cameron. I mean, get me a layup. Uh. I want to read a poem. It's oh, by, by Percy Shelley. It's called Ode to the West Wind. Oh, wild west wind, thou breath of autumn's being, thou from whose unseen presence the leaves dead are driven like ghosts from an unchanter fleeing. Yellow and black and pale and hectic red, pestilence-stricken multitudes, O thou who charitest to their dark wintry bed, the winged seeds where they lie cold and low, each like a corpse within its grave, until thine azure sister of the spring shall blow. Her clarion o'er the dreaming earth, and fill driving sweet buds like flocks to feed in air with living hues and odors plain and hill wild spirit which art moving everywhere destroyer and preserver here oh here if i were dead leave thou mys bare if i were a swift cloud to fly with thee a wave to pant beneath thy power and share keeps going on i love the last line right here scatter as from an un- unextinguished hearth Ashes and sparks, my words among mankind, beat through my lips to unawakened earth, the trumpet of a prophecy. O wind, if winter comes, can spring be far behind. Mm. If winter comes, can spring be far behind. What does that what does that say to you, Garen? It's just like the seasons, they just have they trickle into like winter is the significance of like dying. Uh-huh. And then spring signifies like rebirth new life it's like new life yeah and summer being like what do you think has died in this winter and is about to be born now dude i think well it's definitely 
it's definitely Levin. This is a preface Dude, to yeah. Levin's character. This is Levin's spring. Levin's I, I was going to say, if it comes right after this consummation chapter, then it was probably the purity of Anna's life beforehand. <laughs> but yeah. Levin's character, too. We can talk about that. Yeah, so... In Krinana, if that wasn't enough description of spring for you, it has a beautiful description of spring. <laughs> come on, come on. That we're going to go through if we have time. Come on, let's keep talking I've, about I've it. I've never experienced spring. I need to Neither, actually. It. I need what? to we, This is why we need books. If an alien came down to Earth, how would you describe spring? All right, let me, let me <laughs> tell you in Tolstoy's yeah. words. All right. He says, Spring was a long time unfolding. During the last weeks of Lent, the weather was clear and frosty. In the daytime, it thawed in the sun, but at night it went down to seven below. There was such a crust that the carts would go over it where there was no road. There was still snow at Easter. Then suddenly on Easter Monday, a warm wind began to blow. Dark clouds gathered, and for three days and three nights, warm, heavy rain poured down. On Thursday, the wind dropped and a thick gray mist gathered, as if concealing the mysteries of the changes taking place in nature. Under the mist, waters flowed, ice blocks cracked and moved off the muddy foaming streams ran quicker and the eve of krasnaya gorka the mist scattered the dark clouds broke up into fleecy white ones the sky cleared and real spring unfolded in the morning the bright sun rose and quickly ate up the thin ice covering the water and the warm air was all a tremble filled with the vapors of the reviving earth the old grass and the sprouting needles of new grass greened the buds on the rose, the currants, and the sticky, spirituous birches swelled, and on the willow, all sprinkled with golden catkins, the flitting, newly hatched bee buzzed. Invisible larks poured trills over the velvety green fields and the ice-covered stubble. The peewit wept over the hollows and marshes still filled with brown water. High up, the cranes and geese flew with their spring honking. Cattle, patchy, molted in all but a few places, Load in the meadows, bow-legged lambs played around their bleeding, shedding mothers. Fleet-footed children ran over the drying paths covered with the prints of bare feet, the merry voices of women with their linen chattered by the pond. And from the yards came the knock of the peasants' axes, repairing plows and harrows. The real spring had come. Mm. Beautiful. <laughs> mm. Mm. Right yeah. now we're doing Italian hand motions <laughs> with our hands. You really are. Beautiful. Emma, I'm so glad you read that because I read it in the book, but to just close my eyes and hear someone read it to me, I was able to just let my feel mind spring. imagine, you know, like see yeah, and feel see all the things. Oh, did you see I heard it? the thumping axes of the, the peasants. I saw Oh, them. yeah. <laughs> it's just beautiful. It makes me want to experience spring. Yeah. No, I love that. Um, I feel like it really definitely, you know, signifies this turn in Levin's story um, from, you know, his loss, um, from his, you know, rejection. And uh, it also leads into this, like, really fun part of of Levin being this tender of his land. This, you know, he's, I'm, my dad's a farmer. And so, like, what comes after this of Levin, like trying to get his land ready and fighting to, uh, you know, get, get the wheels moving in this new year kind of spoke out to me. Um, and I love like, he's, you know, he's just really rejuvenated by, 
you know, this turn of the weather and this turn of the turn of the seasons. And immediately he gets to work. You know, he starts giving orders for troughs to be built, for pens to be opened, for carpenters to repair things. And of course, like nothing's going to plan at first. You know, the carpenter that he sends for is working on something that should have been repaired, you know, weeks ago. Um, and I just want to read this little p- part of, uh, of Levin um, being pissed off. He goes, what was vexing to him was the repetition of this eternal slovenliness of farm work, which he had fought against with all his strength with, for so many years. And I, I just love that. It's just this constant, you know, trying to dig yourself out of a sandy hole and the sand's just constantly falling in. Like, this is like what I've experienced just talking to my dad about farming. Um, kind of like one of the reasons why I didn't go into farming. It's just like the weather is against you. You know, other people are against you. You can't find enough people to work the land. Nothing's ever going right. Um, but Levin gets after it with such an enthusiasm. And... I also want to jump to this is later. Um, yeah, they all had the same attitude attitude towards his proposals, talking about like all these plans he's got for his land, building things and getting, you know, all this ready. And therefore he now no longer got angry, but became upset and felt himself still more roused to fight this somehow elemental force for which he could find no other name than as God grants which was caught mm-hmm. constantly opposed to him. And it's just like this feeling of like, he's fighting the almighty and like he has no power <laughs> in this land. Um, but I love that. Like he has this cure and it gets at to it. it. It gets to this point of where he's talking to his workers and they're being all lazy and like not doing the job how he wants. And what he does is go, he goes out in the field and starts sowing himself like Levin went as well as he could, scattering the seeds mixed with soil. It was hard walking as through a swamp, and having gone one row, Levin came, became sweaty, stopped, and handed the seed basket back. And then he leaves just like in joy. He says, you know, he, he leaves gaily, feeling the effectiveness of the remedy. And that it's just like getting down and dirty with his fellow worker, he identified like he can all like all of a sudden has compassion for the people that he's asking to do all these jobs and is no longer coming from this place of why isn't everything going right for me? It's like he just actually gets down there and gets his hands in the mud. And all of a sudden, like it doesn't matter that he's out of that. Like everything is out of his control. Mm. It's like, he has this joy in the work again, but I don't know. I just wonder what y'all thought about that. Yeah. Praise God for the farmers because I mean, we talk about, you talk about that work being hard and it's just crazy, at least the position that I'm in, a, a 21st century man, like living off of the, the fruit of others' labor, you know, like I can go to the, the local store and, and buy, like, it's just all the shelves are full of food that I didn't work for. Um, like I didn't, I didn't toil in the, in the earth for that. And I I think there's a really interesting connection of like, of course, Levin could describe screen spring so beautifully because he pays attention, you know, like he knows the land and he's united with the beauty. I mean, the think of the, the beautiful sunset 
but like another part of nature is like the whipping winds and the the storms but he's just united to it all and he he's able to from a from a place of grounded experience like speak about the beauty and the and the really difficult things about it um mm. man and i i'm just inspired to spend more time outside reading that because i i live in an air conditioned house or heated house depending on the weather where I can turn on lights and you, I think there's something romantic about being in the, in the rhythm of the yeah. seasons, you know, and, and like feeling like it's cold and like, and whenever the, the sun goes down, like going down with the sun, I, that's just how our, our species has lived for so many years. And um, it's just, I I've enjoyed and inspired by, by Levin's lifestyle um, as like, it being very beautiful and difficult all at once. Mm. And it's like the, just like how the seasons go, or the winter comes and, and spring follows and summer. So is just the seasons of our life. Like we're going to have low lows. We're going to have highs. It's never this like constant. It's not something we can really control. Um, but it's interesting how, yeah, it's like, that's, I see that as a theme in this book too, is like light and dark, warm, cold, death, life. It's like mm. these contrasting things. Like you, you can't have one with the, without the other. Dude. You know? Yeah. Like rejection for Levin is, is like, is the fertilizer for his soul. Mm. Yeah. You know, he's new. Something new is being created in him right now out in the fields. Yeah, and I feel like that contrast is like what like we it strikes us so clearly. You know, like reading the book, it strikes you when you see like the depths of someone's soul, and then you also see these like highs that characters will go on. But also, if you think about it, like from their point of view, and the relationship between like Vronsky and Anna, like that contrast of like this beautiful like love that they're feeling, and then the darkness that they're ignoring like there's that strike that stark contrast that like is i don't know it's enthralling like it kind of grips you you know and it makes that 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 brightness taste a little sweeter Mm. feel a little brighter because there's that darkness on the other side of it gosh i love spring (laughs) What a- <laughs> this is beautiful. I um, I, I see we have roughly five minutes left mm-hmm. of time also, available. You about your favorite part, I kind of already talked about it. So I'll just let y'all let's keep moving. Cool. Yeah. Does anybody have any like wrapping up thoughts or oh, other oh, oh short shoot. favorite yeah. parts? Wait. Yeah. No. I, I do want to talk. About <laughs> um, I want to talk about the horse race because the horse race was. Sick. Um, you don't have to. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, awesome. You don't have to do anything, <laughs> dude. No, I do want to talk. About, let me flip to the horse race. So, was it as sick as Kitty at the beginning of the part? It's sicker. It's <laughs> sicker. Um, Vronsky freaking loves horses, and I love that about him. He's got this separate interest outside of women that he just like unbelievable is. In, yeah, he he loves the races. He lo- he like the <laughs> way that he interacts with the horses. Like you can just tell that like he, um, 
he really loves this. Not just because like people think it's, you know, fascinating, not, not for the glory of other people, but just cause like he loves horses and loves racing. Um, but yeah, you see this, this thrilling race, um, going on after Bronski's made a little rendezvous with his woman and they had a little chit chat up on the balcony and the sun was there and making Bronski feel all weird because the sun doesn't know what to think about this guy who's now in a relationship with his mom, but he doesn't really know what the relationship is. Anyway, there's all this like wonderful little interplay going on there where the sun is pointing this couple in the opposite direction of where they're headed. Um, but then you get to this this thrilling chapter on on this race, and I think it just perfectly mirrors Vronsky's relationship with Anna. Um, his horse is such a beautiful thing, and like throughout the the race, Vronsky is saying like, um, "Let me flip to it." He's going, "Oh, you sweetheart! Oh, you sweetheart!" He's like in perfect step with the horse. He starts to think that he starts to plan to take the horse one way and the horse is already going that way. And they're perfectly in sync in running this beautiful race. And he's in the lead and Bronski's already, you know, feeling like he's won. He's celebrating. He's all he's doing is thinking about the finish, you know, up until the last obstacle. Um, There remained one little ditch of water five feet wide. Bronski was not even looking at it but wishing to come in at a long first. So Bronski is like losing his head kind of in this race. He's caught up in the emotion and in the glory of it. Um, and he's loving this beautiful animal that he's riding on. Um, but I'll keep reading. He felt that the horse was drawing on her last reserve. Not only were her neck and shoulders wet, but sweat broke out and drops on her withers, her head, her pointed ears, and her breath was sharp and short. But he knew that this reserve was more than enough for the remaining 500 yards, only because he felt himself closer to the earth, and from the special softness of her movement could Bronski tell how much the horse had increased her speed. She flew over the ditch as if without noticing it. She flew over it like a bird. But just then, Bronski felt to his horror that having failed to keep up with the horse's movement, he, not knowing how himself, had made a wrong, an unforgivable movement as he lowered himself into the saddle. His position suddenly changed, and he knew that something terrible had happened. He was not yet aware of what it was, but then the white legs of the chestnut stallion flashed just before him, and his rival went by at a fast clip. All of a sudden, you know, he's hitting the ground, the horse is barreling over, there's all these awkward movements. Um... And it describes the, the, the horse at the ground like a wounded bird. Vronsky had made, the awkward movement Vronsky had made had broken her back. Um, and then it just describes the horse looking up at her with her lovely eye. And I think that just like perfectly mirrors the murder, you know, the consummation of this um, infidelity. That's going on. Um, this race, you know, Vronsky doesn't really know. He, you know, he's pushing, he's pushing, he's pushing towards this goal. And with one little fatal step, he's broken this beautiful creature that um, 
and he, you know, is full is he's able to see just the death of a beautiful thing, um, kind of the death of innocence. Mm-hmm. You know, it says at the end of that too, for the first time in his life, he experienced a heavy misfortune, misfortune that was irremediable and for which he himself was to blame. Yeah. Funny that he acknowledges his own blame in this instance, but not in this instance. <laughs> I know. It's like he breaks his horse back by, by, <laughs> by, you know, not paying attention to the race and comes out okay. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is, you know, he feels incredible guilt over this and maybe not over the other. And recall, oh. this is the most heavy and painful memory of his life. Yeah. Yeah. He's had a pretty good life. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that was that was beautiful. Also, I I haven't read to that part yet, but I'm excited to because I probably would not have made that connection. Um, yeah. No, I mean, oh, I just I, I look forward to reading through that lens. It reminded me so much of like he's standing over the horse, and it says like the horse is named Fru-Fru. You know, before him, gasping heavily, lay Fru-Fru. Her head turned to him, looking at him with her lovely eye. And Vronsky is just standing over her while she's thrashing, quote unquote, like a fish, you know. And uh, it just reminds me of when he's standing over Anna and Anna's just sinking to the ground. Um, mm-hmm. and it's like Vronsky, yeah. without meaning to, is, you know, got the touch of death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And just not and, thinking about consequences at all, that's, anything. That's exactly what I wanted to build on that I see is that. Like he's on the horse, he just he's already thinking about the end, but he's not focusing on his actions in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I don't know, just the thought of the ends don't justify the means. Yeah, mm-hmm. or maybe and he's so way, focused like, on right. He's so focused yeah. Maybe he's on so focused on the actions in the moment that he's not thinking of the consequences. You know, like maybe he's just so caught in what is feels good now. Yeah. 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 It could be those two extremes of like, he just, he's not looking at the full picture in some way. Um, it's disregarding the things in the present that are the consequences and the, the side effects because right. you're so single minded and focusing on the end goal. Right. Yeah. I feel like single mindedness is a good word for it. Yeah. That's a good mm-hmm. word. You know, tunnel vision. Yeah. Tunnel vision. Yeah. Myopia. Yeah, it illustrates that really well in the race, talking about only seeing the horse right in front of him. Right. And it's it's interesting too how he talk he's talking about the horse, like he loves her in the same way. Yeah. It's probably foreshadowing oh, something bad's yeah. gonna happen with Anna. Hypothetically maybe. <laughs> Hypothetically maybe, but perhaps. It's cool, it's cool how the imagery is of like the horse flying mm-hmm. and it talks about like like a bird. Yeah. And it talks, yeah. And it talks about how the horse was wounded like a bird. Yeah. And then how described like a fish yeah like yeah. in my head i'm like whoa it goes from like sky to ocean yeah like from like top mm-hmm. all the way down to the in the same way that austin was talking about how yeah Anna just sunk to the floor yeah she went from this high place to now she's fallen like into a maybe descending into, into wow. a harsher reality yeah. mm-hmm. also to like further cement this this juxtaposition of anna and the horse it describes Vronsky's face in the same way again. His face yeah. disfigured by passion, pale, his lower jaw trembling. And so, you know, that's the same exact way that he stands over Anna at right. the murder, quote unquote, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, so I, I really think that like 
It's a good parallel. Also needs to parallel those two. Right. Does anyone want to talk about um, kind of Anna's coming out to her husband? Cause, or Anna's perspective on the race and the aftermath of that? Because I feel like that's a good wrap up to the part. Yeah, there. Um, we're talking about when they were in the carriage. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, we're at we're at an hour, so that would be perfect just to start wrapping that up. Yeah, um, I think maybe since just for the sake of time, we should just wrap up with the very last scene. Maybe yeah, let's just wrap yeah, up with yeah, the yeah. last scene. Um, yeah, just real briefly. One observation I have with Kitty: Kitty's starting to get better. She's following these two characters. I can't pronounce their names. It's like Varenka. Another yeah. Welcome to Russian um, literature. <laughs> but one thing I took away from the very last scene is that Kitty is starting to make these good actions uh, based off these other two women's actions. and But she realizes that her actions aren't sincere and that she's following an illusion. And her dad basically calls her out on it. I'm giving you all the very brief. Yeah, you're doing great. And... Her dad calls her out on it. She's like, yeah, dad, you're right. Like, I shouldn't be just following an illusion. And I think this is a way to open up a different perspective on what Anna's doing. Because Anna is basically heading mm-hmm. towards believing in, a, in an illusion. And Kitty's doing the opposite. Kitty's realizing, oh, I don't want to, if I'm not sincere in these actions, like I don't want to follow in an illusion. Mm-hmm. So she kind of pulls out. Um, and that's how the part two ends. Um, it's the opposite of the first part with uh, Kitty being wrapped up in her illusion with Vronsky and, uh, and Anna breaking down everything for everyone else. That's a good observation. I didn't realize it. that. Yeah. And a lot of foreshadowing. I'm very excited for the, for the next part. The third yeah. part, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Sweet. thank you, everyone, if you made it this far for listening. Um, we love you. Do you have Deeply. thoughts? Can they submit <laughs> ideas? Deeply. Yeah, so if you go on our sub stack at Highbrow Book Club, you can yeah, maybe that little, can be you can hit the discussion tab and you can type whatever you think. <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> you can send us hate mail. <laughs> we we'll read it on stuff. air. Yeah. yeah no, that's a good anything. note. We'll read the good- comment that you say on air. Mm-hmm. I won't talk about it. Connor. And John might sing about it. Who knows? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. All right. Hope you hope you took something away from this podcast. Hope something was reborn in you. I'm on fire, baby. <laughs> I'm thinking yeah, let's about keep, Let's keep reading this book. For, yeah. yeah, let's. I think, let's I think I'm going to commit to this part three for the next week. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> I might board. do the same. I'm on board. Wait, I want to see John's beautiful face. Oh. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Dude, your hair is crazy. Yeah, I've got crazy hair. I think that's a great place to wrap this up. My hair is crazy. <laughs> yeah. This is John's crazy hair. All right. All right. Hope that makes into the dream state tonight. Uh, John's beautiful golden locks. Um, All right. Yeah. Peace, love, and happiness, the stop button. and highbrow. Oh, boy. <laughs>